So I'd like to begin the talk tonight with a story of a person that I actually personally feel quite close to, even though I never met. Um, and it's a story that I heard early on in my practice, and I've, it's a story that I've kept with me all these years in some special corner of my heart. It's a story about Milarepa, the Tibetan uh, great meditation master and saint. He was practicing uh, all by himself in a cave. He had gone out to um, find some nettles for his tea, a little sparser than what we have here. And he came back to his cave to find seven demons blocking his entrance to the cave. In the Tibetan way of speaking, um, the demons represent the hindrances. And there they were. And he saw them and immediately thought of how he would get rid of them. Sound familiar? He thought of all the different techniques he, he knew. He thought of all the strategies that he might employ to get rid of these demons. And so he began to cast spells and chant mantras and do vicious dances in front of them and um, preach the Dharma. And nothing worked. They were still there. So he had to go into himself in a way which asked himself, what, what more is needed here? What can I do? What resources do I have inside to meet these demons? And he, he had to get quiet for a while and go inside. And he became more attentive, actually, to them. And he began to feel a kind of friendliness towards them, a kind of warmth of heart. And so finally he said to them, he said, it is wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time we should converse. That opening of the heart was useful because about five of them disappeared. But there were still two left. And so he had to go even deeper into himself and say, what more is needed from me to uh, find out how I can work with these demons? And so he became more compassionate, at which point another demon, one of the two remaining, left. But there was one left that he said was particularly vicious and powerful. He went within, and then he came out and he drew close to the demon. And with the most sincere and compassionate opening of his heart, he said, Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. Ah, me, I do feel compassion for this spirit. And with this total acceptance and surrender and with this total open-heartedness, he offered himself fully to this demon. And, of course, as in all good Dharma stories, the demon then vanished into a rainbow. <laughs> I like this story because there's this sense of what is required of us 
truly in meeting ourselves in this way that we are asking you to do, meeting ourselves in this practice of turning our attention inward and noticing moment to moment our experience. It takes a while to convince ourselves that that all that we need to do is that, that we don't need better techniques, more strategies, a better teacher, a better retreat center, or something else to deal with this. This is not going to work. This is not enough. When I started uh, my practice, I started in the Zen tradition and a little bit in the Tibetan tradition. And in those traditions, there's a bit more ritual. There's a bit more... uh, pomp and circumstance, if you will. And I was quite convinced that at some point that I would be given the secret teachings. I thought that that there were secret teachings and that I would be given them. I would be taken into some back room that they never, you know, showed anybody and somebody would do something to me that would zap me, you know, and that would be all I had to do. I would get it and then I could go about my life, you know. I was really hoping that that could happen and of course it never did. But over the years what I have come to understand is that the teachings of Dharma are self-secret. We keep the, the, we keep the Dharma secret from ourselves. They are always being given, these secrets. These secret teachings are being given right here, right now, in your body, in your mind, unfolding before our eyes. But it is somehow our dullness, our distraction, our inability to see clearly that keeps us from knowing these secrets, keeps us from seeing them. The open secret of the Dharma, it is always here, now available. The Buddha talked about three forces which prevent us from seeing in this way. The forces of greed, the forces of hatred, and the forces of delusion, or dullness, or ignorance. We hear quite a bit about greed. We hear quite a bit about hatred. I'd like to talk a little bit about delusion. In some of the texts, delusion is described as an old blind person tottering about making mistake after mistake not able to see what is true or to act in a skillful way. Although the light of reality is always shining, delusion has this function, you could say, of keeping us blind, keeping us in the dark. And the deepest and most fixed aspect of our delusion, this blindness, is a belief in the existence of a separate self of me and mine. The belief driving this separate self is the belief that I must survive, I must continue. It's built into our DNA. 
every living being, we could say, shares in this drive to survive. And it's not all bad. It's just that we take it to extremes, believing things that are not true. Delusion has a kind of stubborn intelligence about it to survive and to maintain its belief in its independence and separateness. It is what we are born into, this blindness. There is no blame for it. It's not a personal failing. It is just it's part of what we inherit as humans. There is a Hindu saying, <clears throat> the baby in the womb sings, let me remember who I am. Her first cry on being born, I've forgotten already. Delusion is this kind of profound forgetting of our true nature. It is an inability to see what is true and to allow that truth to penetrate the darkness of our being. It is this delusion which strategizes, which tries to solve problems in its own way, on its own terms, without letting in the light of reality, the light of consciousness. So this is kind of what we're up against. And another analogy I like to use for this inability to see clearly is the analogy of the stereogram. Many of you, I know, have seen these. Um, They're often in the form of a a picture or a poster where you, you look at this thing called a stereogram and what you first see are dots, a multicolored display of many, many, many dots. Have you seen these? Yes. And you know how it is that Somebody says, well, it's really a picture of an elephant. And you think, what? I just see dots. I don't see an elephant. There's no elephant there. But if you look at it in a certain kind of way, you stay very relaxed. You don't try too hard. You have to keep your eyes open. But you don't try too hard. You kind of apply wise effort. Suddenly, it's kind of magical, the elephant appears. And this random display of dots is suddenly this incredibly vivid elephant. And once you have seen it, it's there. And you cannot not see it. This is a good analogy because it's very much like how our practice goes. What changes as we practice is our ability to see, to see what is here and now displaying itself that we haven't seen before. And sometimes it's as simple as something like noticing change. Oh my God, it's changing all the time. There's nothing to hold on to. That's a revelation. I remember um, many years ago, more years ago than I even care to think, (laughs) I uh, was working on a degree in psychology, was doing my internship, and I had a a 
pretty intense year because I was splitting my time between suicide prevention and juvenile hall. <laughs> half of the week was at one and half of the week was at the other. It was, you know, kept me awake. <laughs> but I was coming up against a level of suffering that I, in my somewhat protected white middle-class existence, had never come in contact with before. So it was very challenging. And in the middle of all that stress, I decided to take a yoga class. And I went to this yoga class. And part of the yoga class was some instruction on how to breathe. I was getting a PhD in psychology. Nobody in my life until that time had ever even mentioned to me that there might be some value or significance in following my breath or even noticing that I was breathing. I mean, this is back in the 70s, so maybe we weren't as sophisticated then. I don't know, but it was a revelation to me to begin to feel the presence of my breath. I mean, I can't tell you how amazing it was. I began to see the breath and its relationship to emotion, the breath, its relationship to the mind and the state of the mind. It was a complete revelation. I also remember very much later on when I had started doing meditation practice, Vipassana practice, and I was on my first long retreat and I had a lot of fear arising, not uncommon, but I really didn't like it and I didn't know much about how to work with fear. So I kind of discovered something on my own, actually, which was that the, about the only place in my experience that I could find some refuge from the fear was in a moment of the outbreath. In each outbreath, I began to sense a place of, where there was no fear. I began to sense this kind of letting go that was very profound, and it kind of got me through the fear. Other things helped as well. But it was such a discovery that on the out-breath, there could be a sense of letting go. It was another one of those moments, like the stereogram, of something coming into my consciousness that had not been there before. One way to describe uh, my experience, as all of our experiences, is that through cultivating mindfulness, we are beginning to experience how mindfulness functions in three different ways. First, mindfulness functions allowing, allowing us to know the mind. We we really get it that our experience originates in the mind. It does not originate outside of us. It's like what Gil was talking about last night, that turning of our attention, we see where our experience is originating from. And in that, we begin to learn about ourselves. We learn about our habits and our patterning our tendencies. We begin to see how they arise in relationship to things that happen. 
The second way that mindfulness functions is in shaping the mind. As we are mindful of what arises, we begin to discover that in being mindful, we create more space in the mind, more possibility of another response than our usual one. We begin to sense that our habits of mind are actually malleable, pliable, that we can change even very deeply ingrained habits rather than be lost in and completely identified with what arises. The third function of mindfulness is that of liberating the mind. Mindfulness itself gives us the capacity to see that the mind itself is empty. It is not a fixed or solid thing at all. Our language kind of makes it seem like a thing, fixed, solid, existing somewhere. Has anyone ever seen a mind? Not yet. So these functions, we don't need to think about them. They simply awaken as we pay attention in this moment-to-moment way to our experience. As we open and welcome each arising of the mind, just as Milarepa learned to do, with this gentle, careful attention, this gentle attending to the moment-to-moment experience. In our culture, in our conditioning, we think, uh, we think that the way to solve our problems is by thinking about them. Mindful awareness is a radically different approach. From the point of view of mindfulness, thinking about our problems is actually a way to hold on to them. It is what the Buddha called unwise attention. Trying to solve our problem by thinking about it often serves to solidify the situation. We end up with a very solid me with a very solid problem, and it doesn't usually go anywhere. On the other hand, mindfulness is preconceptual. It is what is known before any thinking begins. So I'd like to do a little experiment right now, just together. I'm going to ring the bell, and I have one question to ask you to notice in your own experience. You don't need to close your eyes. You don't need to do anything. Just notice what is present before any thinking. thoughts we have about the bell, any ideas or preferences that arise about the bell, that's all extra. Mindfulness knows before any thought arises. The Zen poet Basho instructed his fellow poets, learn about the pine from the pine, learn about the bamboo from the bamboo. In the same way in mindfulness practice, we can learn about the breath from the breath. We can learn about pain from pain. We can learn about joy from joy. 
We can learn about letting go by releasing our grasping. We can learn about the suffering of anger by experiencing what it does to the mind, to the body, to the energy system. We can learn about anicca, about impermanence, by observing it unfolding moment to moment. We can learn about anatta by observing that a self is not findable, not locatable, no matter how hard we look. This kind of learning is experiential. This is a way of knowing ourselves that is not dependent on thought or the accumulation of knowledge. It is direct, it is immediate, and undeniable when we really see. This way of knowing opens our perception and changes our view of reality. William Blake wrote, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through the narrow chinks of his cavern. I love that description. What a vivid description of our dilemma that we have closed somehow in the way that we have not attended, we have closed ourselves up. And cleansing our perception, you could say, is the journey of practice. Seeing what is true moment to moment is the beginning of letting go. When we see what is true, things are released from our grasping, from our holding. It's like cleaning out the attic and all the stuff we no longer need gets set free. And as we let go, something else of great significance begins to happen. And we don't even have to know that it's possible. In the letting go itself, qualities of being which we may not have known were in us begin to appear. Qualities such as calmness, acceptance, care, compassion, patience, kindness, they begin to come forth. We discover these resources within ourselves. The heart begins to awaken, and we begin to see through its eyes. This is the beginning of a kind of wisdom. The writer Proust wrote, we do not receive wisdom we must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness which no one else can do for us, which no one can spare us, for our wisdom is the view from which we come at last to see the world. It happens all by itself, just from this simple process of opening and attending with careful attention So, we speak in 
the Buddhist tradition about right view. And this entire journey, it seems to me, can be described as a deepening understanding of what this means. The word right doesn't mean right as opposed to wrong, but it means right as in harmony with reality. Some call it wise view. It is the first limb of the Eightfold Path and an essential piece of understanding of the very basis of what practice is about. As we practice, our view becomes more impersonal, more subtle, more penetrating through the illusion of things, more inclusive. Classically, right view is talked about as the Four Noble Truths. Tonight I want to talk about some other even more basic views which develop with our mindfulness. The first is the view of the body that comes with practice. What is it? This could be a whole talk in itself, but I want to be quite brief and simple. So I know you'll know what I mean when I say that in our culture, the body is very much viewed as an object. The appearance of the body is seen to be who we are. Is it not true? And so people give an inordinate amount of time and attention to their appearance, trying to uh, maintain our youthfulness, trying to appear youthful, has become a major preoccupation in our culture, the makeover culture. It appears that, you know, just about any body part can be made over, made to appear. Once again, fresh, youthful, vibrant, glowing, radiant with health. There's a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine that I like. It's of a uh, made-over woman who has just got everything. You know, she's got the lift and the, the, the right lips and the boobs and the, the whole body is just, you know, the perfect dream. And she's sitting there showing off her body to a group of very elderly people. They're all sitting on the porch of a retirement home. And there are these elderly people kind of drooping in their chairs, you know, looking up at her, and she's just like, whoa, you know. And she says to them, it cost a bundle, but I can't tell you how much better I feel about myself. (laughs) I just think that's very (laughs) funny myself. That's what we base our good feelings on, you know, this youthful appearance. So in practice, we are bringing our attention into the body, making it a subject rather than an object, feeling it from the inside as sensation, as the elements of earth, air, fire, water, discovering in this internal way that it is not so solid, this body, that it is continually changing. 
and finally coming to know the body itself as a field of awareness. On retreat, we are learning to live more fully in these bodies as energy, as awareness, as aliveness. And this changes our view. We begin to experience the body, hopefully, as a resource for our awakening, not something to transcend or get out of, but a way of being present, being fully embodied, being fully here. As we drop down from the thinking mind into this living field of awareness, into the heart, into the hara, as we do so, we discover a lot about the knowing capacity of these centers in the body. I'd like to um, illustrate this with a simple exercise. So I'd like to give you an instruction and ask your participation in this exercise. And this is the only time you will hear me give such an instruction. And that is, I'd like you to think about a problem. Think about a problem. Maybe a problem you've been having today, a story, an obsession, a worry, a fear. Think about it. Analyze it. Think what to do about it. And as you are doing that, notice what is that experience like? You should know this very well by now. (laughs) What is the experience of thinking? Now I'd like to, to invite you to take this problem into the heart. Bring it down to the heart. Feel what is present in the heart with this problem. Now I'd like to invite you to bring it into the hara, into the belly. Bring the problem to the belly. What is that experience like? Okay, please open your eyes. Would anybody like to share anything about their experience? Anything you discovered? Yes. The thinking part was worried and contracted. And the heart part was a lot more calm and actually had some good advice. And then the heart part is actually my problem. So that was harder. But it too was calm. It was like, just chill out. You'll be fine. Not in those words. Yes. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. The mind was distracted. Uh huh. And in the heart, there was just a lot of sweetness and compassion. And in the heart, there wasn't even any problem. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. What to make of that? Isn't that curious? Anyone else? 
Well, I've enlisted my friend and colleague Tija to uh, demonstrate uh, our dilemma. Uh, we we have we've worked together before, and sometimes I've asked him to do this before, and he agreed to do this tonight because he has a really what you know, like they say, one picture is worth a thousand words. So um, I'd like to invite Tija to stand up and um, demonstrate the the thinking guy's approach to life. <laughs> And now demonstrate the um, being in the Hara Center approach to life. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's, thank you, Tisha. isn't it a visual aid is useful. (laughs) It's just such an interesting exploration. So I'd like to just encourage you to explore in this way. See where these problems, what they do when you move them around in your body. What happens to them? So our view of the body really changes. And another way our view changes is in our sense of sufficiency in facing our problems. We begin to sense in practice that there's more resources here than perhaps we knew about. That perhaps who we are is enough. And that we don't need to do more or have more or know more. Because we live in a consumer culture where feelings of scarcity and not enoughness are fed to us on a daily basis, we live in this kind of trance of scarcity and a trance of not enoughness, like what Tara was talking about the other night. And in practice, we really begin to sense the healing of that, the sense that there is more inside than perhaps we ever could imagine. Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, can give us some good advice when he says, in your meditation, you yourself are the mirror reflecting the solution of your problems. The human mind has absolute freedom within its true nature. You can attain this freedom. If you cannot find the truth right where you are, Where else do you expect to find it? Echoed by Huang Po. Our essential nature is empty and allows everything to pass through. It is illuminating, it is peaceful, it is blissful. When you have within yourself a deep insight into this, you immediately realize that all you need is there in perfection and in abundance. And nothing is, is at all wanting or lacking in you. Beautiful words. 
But we need to discover this for ourselves, and we do discover this as we practice. We have these undiscovered resources, this potential that lives inside of us and is just waiting to bloom with our careful, mindful attention. Another significant shift in view happens in relation to our understanding of happiness and where it lies and how to cultivate it. I'd like to say a few brief things about this because this could also be a whole Dharma talk. But I think I can make it brief. There are many different kinds of happiness that we bump into in our practice. And especially here on retreat, we have so many opportunities during a whole month to discover some moments of happiness that are not perhaps so usual in our everyday lives. In our consumer culture, we're taught to pursue a happiness of material objects. In retreat life, we are actually beginning to sense the happiness of very simple things, the happiness of sense pleasure, which is refined and pure, the coming into contact with a pleasant sound, or a beautiful sight, or a simple taste of food or tea. We begin to sense the simple delight of sense pleasure. The happiness of concentration, of finding a mind and body which are unified. Sensing that, feeling it in your own experience. The happiness of cultivating the Brahma Viharas, of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. These are called holy dwellings for the mind because when we are cultivating these qualities, our mind is protected. It is like living in a, in a home that is holy and sacred. And then fourthly, there's the happiness we discover from releasing what has been held, from letting go. This kind of happiness is not dependent on the attainment or accumulation of more, but is found in actually letting go. And so it is best described as an absence. Nasargadatta says, real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there is nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of all meditation is to reach a point when this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual and ever-present experience. The experience of being empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in nothingness, in emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. 
So we bump into this kind of immovable happiness for no reason. Or as my dear friend Howard Cohn says, nothing can make you happier than you are. Finally, I want to speak briefly about this shift in view which comes about in our relationship with that which is difficult to bear, dukkha, the first noble truth of suffering or unsatisfactoriness, that which is difficult to bear. That is that movement of mind which wants it to be different from the minor discomfort of sitting to the unbearable anguish of losing a loved one, dukkha, wanting it to be different. So we do a whole, we'll be talking more on this retreat about the Four Noble Truths, but what I wanted to say tonight is about seeing suffering as not separate from the actual path of practice, seeing that opening to it, welcoming it, embracing it, learning to locate its origin, finding where it lives and how it lives inside of us is a a big shift in our view. To give an illustration, a woman named Sandy Boucher, who I know some of you know as a wonderful teacher of writing and Dharma uh, author, she received a diagnosis of cancer and some years ago, and she writes about this. Um, What happened to her in that moment? This is a moment of being presented with something that we cannot avoid. What is our reaction to that? She said, when I received the news of cancer, I understood, oh yes, what is required of me now is that I be fully present and that I engage with each new experience as completely as I can. I don't mean that I said this to myself, nothing so conscious as that. I mean that my whole being turned and looked and moved toward the experience. That speaks, I think, of her training, of her practice as knowing that the way to meet things is that turning of our complete attention towards, rather than looking for the escape route, rather than resisting or trying to figure out what to do about it, just that turning. Another piece of practice is seeing dukkha as dukkha, knowing that when we are encountering encountering some form of suffering in ourselves, we are recognizing what the Buddha was talking about. We don't have to go into a big drama. My, why me? Oh no. You know, we don't have to go into that kind of victim mentality. We can turn and say, this is dukkha. That's a huge shift in our view. Seeing things as dukkha. Here is dukkha. And it's like this now. Tara mentioned that saying of Achan Sumedho, it's like this. I like to add now 
because that gives room for it to change. This is dukkha. It's like this now. Here it is. It's not a mistake, something to get rid of, but actually a teacher on our path. A Tibetan Lama wrote, having a mind which cannot be hurt by suffering is the characteristic uh, characteristic of those who are tolerant and patient. Turning suffering itself into the path. A poem by Pesta Gertler. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scarves, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones. And I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Seeing our very own dukkha as an expression of our compassion and wisdom, our capacity to open, our capacity to be present with even that which is most difficult. The view that we cultivate in working with suffering is that practice that these kinds of changes in view are, pass- are possible no matter what our situation. There is a Tibetan doctor who uh, was imprisoned for many years, tortured daily. He put it this way, he said, some greatness of heart is possible in whatever situation we find ourselves. This is very much the view of practice, that we can, through our practice, always discover some greatness of heart. So I'd like to close with a story about a group of men who are lifers in San Quentin prison. A friend who works in San Quentin told me this story. It's a story I've thought about a lot. It's been very uh, amazing to contemplate it and to reflect on it. So this group of men who are lifers in San Quentin, they're not, maybe there's a half a dozen of them. There are many lifers in San Quentin, but this This is a select group, a subgroup of a bigger group. These men are known as those who have left without leaving. Because when you are in prison for life, you know, the idea of leaving is not in the cards, or perhaps very rare. But they have managed to find a way to internally free themselves so that internally they are no longer identified with living in prison. They practice three things. They practice seeing 
I'll tell you the three things. The first is that they practice seeing the perfection of whatever is occurring. They practice not liking what is happening necessarily, but accepting it as perfection. The second thing they practice is seeing whatever is occurring as this is my teacher now. The third thing they practice is gratitude. They say thank you for the teaching. That's a profound shift in view. But it is what is possible as we practice. So thank you for your kind attention. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 3, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.